Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast. I'm Abby Branker. I'm here with Alan Kudan. Hello. And we are also here today with John Cook of the Fado podcast. Welcome, John. Hi. Thank you guys very much for having me on. Yeah, and I'm sure you guys have some familiarity with Fado just because of all of our cross promotions and social media uh, back and forth. But, John, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about Fado because we're huge fans. Well, thank you, first of all. I appreciate that. Fado is what, what I've basically come to sort of describe as uh, a storytelling podcast with a bit of armchair commentary. And it, it's, it was sort of born out of the need to reach out and connect during the, uh, the lockdowns last year. It started in May of last year, so just came, on a, came up on a year. Basically, every episode, I read a story, and then I'll, you know, give some commentary on it. Um, and I've done everything at this point. I started with fairy tales exclusively, but I've done, um, you know, I've done some science fiction, some pulps from the 40s. I've done some of my own work. Um, and it's, it's really gotten, it's really grown beyond just fairy tales. But it's, it's mainly that. And um, it's just a lot of fun. I think I have a, a good time over there, and I hope that everyone listening does as well. So, yeah, that's, that's Fado in a nutshell. It's a very good spread of stories. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I, and I've tried to branch out. Like I started, like I said, with just, just one, one or two types, but I found that I, I'm really enjoying reading some of the, you know, some of the different style. you know, the, the, the pulp science fiction is so much fun because, mm. you know, back in the, I don't know, in the 40s and, and such when it was being written, we didn't know as much about space and they were just filling in the blanks and having a great <laughs> time with it. And it was so much fun. Isn't that great, though, when they fill in the blanks and accidentally get it right? I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. And OK, so this conversation comes up too. Uh, well, it has with you and Bob and me and Bob, um, Bob Don from Bob's Short Story Hour. Big f- fans of Bob Don. Yeah. Yes, we're big fans of Bob Don. But the idea that science fiction, particularly out of that rocket ship era, has really influenced our, our science and our technology, like the, the tablets and, and flip phones and things that came out of Star Trek almost directly. And so it's it's fun to see how it's influenced us. Yeah, for sure. I also really love, I think some of the earliest episodes that I listened to uh, of Fado when I first was introduced to you was uh, the Edgar Allan Poe cover. You know, And you do such a good job. I, I've said this before on the podcast, but you really do... You and Bob both like make some some of these like older stories that are dense and written in language that might not always be accessible. It makes it really come to life and so easy to consume it. So yeah, Fado is awesome. Everyone go check out Fado. And I think it's a perfect introduction really to what we're talking about today, which is fairy tales. Fairy tales. Yes. So today we're going to talk about with John the history of fairy tales. And we're also going to do, of course, a really fun story episode after this filled with all kinds of fairy tales. We have a modern fairy tale submission and we have tons of examples of more classics. So it's going to be really fun. I am going to say at the head of this right now, you know, we're not going to get super graphic in this episode, but the kind of overlap between fairy tales and horror, which is what we do is very, is, is kind of the, the disturbing origin of them. Right. And, and we look back at like the Disney versions, which is probably what most people are familiar with to some extent and it's nothing at all like the original and how brutal some of those are. So we're going to talk about some things that are a little rough. We're not going to go into any like harmful details around it, but just so that everyone knows there's going to be, you know, some mentions here and there throughout of tougher topics. So today's sources. We have, of course, as always, our great friend Wikipedia, which, by the way, 
is a great resource if you're looking for some of the original summaries of some of these old fairy tales. They have pretty robust coverage of it on Wikipedia. Have you done your yearly contribution to Wikipedia yet? Of course. Good. Uh, BB- yes, yes. We Part of our Patreon proceeds go right into Wikipedia. We, we owe them our lives. A BBC article, Where Do Fairy Tales Come From? A TED Talk by Anne Duggan. A study from Royal Society Open Science. The 10 Darkest and Most Disturbing Fairy Tales on CultureTrip.com. A Flavor Wire article by Emily Temple. The 10 Most Odd and Creepy Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales from TheMost10.com. And a book called The Hard Facts of the Grim Fairy Tales by Maria Tatar. Without further ado, let's jump into defining fairy tales. Most people are probably familiar with what a fairy tale is, but let's try to define it despite that. Thank you. (laughs) Fairy tales are typically short stories that include magical elements or mythical creatures. For example, witches, mermaids, dragons, dwarves. Fairy tales can either be written or passed down through generations orally. In most cases, they're both. Fairy tales may also include fairies. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You missed that one? Really? Well, I just was it in the list. Well, I, I think I don't think it was in the list, but that's okay I, because it's kind of there in the in the title. It's an important point, though. <laughs> yes, I stand corrected. Yes, of course, fairy tales do often include fairies. Yes, yes. But no, I I think that's a pretty fair definition. You know, I've always I've always kind of extended it to you know tales of of the unknown. There's there's one that I did. Uh, Why the sea is salt. That is, uh, mm. it's sort of, um, some some of them that sort of explain the unknown origins of the things that we see in the world. You know, why the sea is salty, and that that's a that's another sort of I think facet to it. It sort of fills it like like we were saying on the sci-fi. It sort of fills in the gaps. You know, yeah, sort of like Greek mythology. You know, like they have gods of thunder to to understand why thunder. You know, that's obviously mm-hmm. a simplified example, but and so, I guess I mean, that's more of a folkloric sort of thing. It's not yeah. necessarily a fairy tale, but it's part of the whole. Yeah. Picture. Well, that's my question. Like, where do you draw the line between fairy tale, folk tale, and mythology? There are lots of like overlap types of of stories, right? So we also have legends and fables, and those center around a moral agenda, but in some cases are considered different. Like, you know, there are different like subcategories which can overlap with fairy tales, but are kind of like a different categorization. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today, honestly, is like folk folk tales and fairy tales. You know, it's kind of hard. It would be very nuanced for us to only talk specifically about fairy tales, which would include like magical elements. But there's usually they kind of go hand in hand with each other. Yeah, I think they blend profusely. Mm. Yeah. There's also differences between original folk tales and literary folk tales. In many cases, the fairy tales we know were taken from local folklore and turned into works by authors, uh, which is going to be a big part of what we talk about today. Fairy tales often reflect the culture at the time, meaning the lessons within them show us how people thought about their values, about good, evil, and punishment. You can, for example, track one fairy tale throughout like different versions of it that are published or even before, and you can see like how the moral at the end changes to reflect what's the current kind of focus or need of society to address, hmm. which is very interesting. Very, very academic. Very, yes, it's a very academic, serious episode, yes. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most fascinating things I learned in this research is that while there are a few dominant collections, one of course being The Brothers Grimm and the other Charles Perrault's Tales of the Olden Times from 1697, there is also so much more to fairy tale history. Stories that pass down within different regions across the globe. We've heard of Hans Christian Andersen's Danish stories and Walter Scott from Scotland. 
but fairy tales exist across all geographies and peoples. And I will say, we touch a little in this episode on uh, a few examples of Asian fairy tales, but it really is like European focused. But again, you could do a, a whole episode on fairy tales from every single region of the world because this tradition really is kind of like a universal thing that we've seen across history, which is really cool. Wilhelm Grimm of the Brothers Grimm believed that some of the fairy tales they transcribed were thousands of years old and actually can be used as a marker of the beginning of Indo-European language. But some folklore scholars had a different view, claiming that fairy tales were based in more recent history, until a study was published on Royal Society Open Science. The paper was written by Sarah Garza de Silver and Jamshid J. Tarani. The researchers looked at the correlation between these stories with population linguistic patterns, variants, and geography. They compared the tales of magic, set from the biggest compendium of fairy tales called the Arne Thumpson Uther Index, and were able to trace at least 76 of the 275 stories back to the invention of English, French, or Italian languages. Can we start getting into the more, you know, nuanced facts, please? This is stuff everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only dense part, and then it gets more fun, I promise. I mean, you had, but I think it's- you had me at y- Yarn Uther. Well, you know, no, this, this, to, to me, this fascinates me to know it because this is the same stuff I came across when I started my show mm-hmm. is the idea that these, these, the fairy tales can, are almost like they, tra- they traveled across the world like a yeah. language, like, and you can see the language in it and you can see them travel. It's, it's fascinating to me. We're, we're talking about how they travel all around the world. Yes. Yet most fairy tales seem very, very Eurocentric. Well, those are the ones you're familiar with. Th- they are. Yeah. And I will say, like, we'll talk about this later, but Cinderella, for example, there's 60 whatever. No, that's a made up number. But there's a, a, a lot of known versions of Cinderella across the globe. So we're going to tell yeah. the Chinese version of that, the South American version of that. Well, I, OK, so that that was that was the follow up question. Yeah. Do they just become, you know, appropriated by the cultures as they. Yes, for sure. Well, and I think. Yeah, I think the the important thing there is, you know, I, I personally, I, I have a European background. And mm-hmm. so the European culture takes the bones of the story and they make it their own to resonate inside their own cultures. And I think that happens to all the cultures. Sure. A lot of, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's fascinating to see. And, and in some ways, it's, it's a great way to learn about different cultures is to see their version of the story and what's, what sticks out and what's important to them. Some of these go back like 6,000 years and so that's before we've had we have territories and cultures as we see them now, right? These are very very old stories, and so some of these in the tradition of of fairy tales and folk stories predates, right? Like country lines and and geographies and the way we think of them in twenty twenty one, and and to see you know what I mean. And so it's very fascinating to see how enduring some of these are. Jack and the Beanstalk is actually over five thousand years old, for example. How do we know that? Because I, I read it on YouTube. This is also known as a series of iterations from the boy who stole the ogre's treasure. Versions of Jack and the Beanstalk are categorized as a type of story called the boy who stole the ogre's treasure, right? That's kind of like the over. Yeah, they really just give away the whole plot in the title. (laughs) Beauty and the Beast and Rumpelstiltskin were first published in the 17th century, published in a book. But as you may guess, can actually be traced back to origins from between 2,500 and 6,000 years ago. And I'm sure you're wondering, Alan, what is the oldest fairy tale that's actually been identified? I mean, we all know this, but please go ahead. I can see him (laughs) wondering right here. I can see him wondering. (laughs) A story that is at least 6,000 years old, if not older, originated in the Bronze Age called The Smith and the Devil. Oh. 
that this predates even the earliest version of Indo-European language. I was not familiar with this story, but I'll give you the summary. Yeah, I was going to say, what's that one about? So a blacksmith or a metal worker of some kind sells their soul to an evil demon. In return, they get the ability to weld together any and all materials, right? So they become like a master welder. He then tricks, the blacksmith tricks the devil and tries to leash him to a huge boulder to get out of the pact. Oh, the good old Prometheus trick. Mm-hmm. And he is successful. Oh. So it's interesting, right? Like that story is 6,000, is confirmed to be at least 6,000 years old. Like Jack and the Beanstalk confirmed to be at least 5,000 years old. Like can, how do you even wrap your head around that, you know? And what I what I love, so the Smith and uh, the Smith and the Devil that that particular story is one that I have yet to do on the show, but it's one that I want to do on the show because my so I, it's one of those that I think nobody has heard of, but everybody yeah. knows. And of course, I, I tend to filter my commentary through a heavy lens of pop culture and things of that nature. I try to you know try. I don't get too scholarly or academic, but mostly <laughs> it's observational and and things of that things of that nature. But the Devil went down to Georgia. Yeah. What is that? Seventies, nineteen seventies, the Charlie Daniels song. Yeah. But but we have but we still have that story, and it shows up in many ways. You know, tricking the devil out of you know his, his whatever. And and the devil went down to Georgia is one of one of my favorite iterations of the Smith and the Devil. It's just you're not you know now he's a skilled fiddle player, not a skilled blacksmith. Wow, that's a great connection. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know tricking the devil is a, is an old 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 story. And that yeah. goes way back, way back. We we watched a movie fairly recently. It sounds so familiar. And I couldn't remember the exact title, so I had to Google it, which was Aram and Terry. The English uh, release of that movie was called The Devil and the Blacksmith. There we watched that? We did. Uh, it was like a year ago. I don't think I was there for that. That's interesting. What, where, what country was it made in? Oh, it was in Spain. Got it. Interesting. Very interesting. And it's similar to the plot of the fairy tale of a blacksmith Mm -hmm. does a pact with the devil to get something. He, well, he achieves his goal, I suppose, but then he becomes ostracized by society is being like marked by the devil, but that's because the devil is just like always around, like trying to fuck with him. Mm -hmm. And so he locks up the devil and then things even get worse because like he has the devil locked up and then all the devil's little minions are hanging around causing havoc. What, what, is interesting to me about this is that that's like sounds like a one-to-one modern remake you know and so like even though we weren't super aware of this story still and you know someone in spain was and they they remade like they named it the same thing and remade it in 2017 yeah that's crazy there's an and there's another story that's related and i think it might be middle eastern it might even be don't quote me on this it might be in the arabian (laughs) nights i'm not sure but there's another one the 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 genie and the fisherman where essentially the, he finds a genie bottle in a lake and uh, tricks the, the genie, you know, obviously wants to give him three wishes, but the wishes don't go as planned, but he ends up tricking the genie back into the bottle by appealing to his vanity or something like that. I don't have, Got him. yeah, you know, and so it's one of those things where like that, that's that whole, that whole story is, is everywhere. It's in a lot of different cultures and being that old, it ought to be, I would think. It's just so impressive that it has lasted, you know, that it is just not lost, knowing that for the majority of its life, if so to speak, it was passed down orally. 
Yeah. And how many things are not lost that we don't even know are not lost right. because we don't know they were ever, or, you know, that we don't know their origins. Yeah. Yeah. Which is sad. I know. Yeah, it's true. So we cannot talk about the history of fairy tales without talking about the Brothers Grimm. You've probably heard of the Brothers Grimm. Wilhelm Carl Grimm, and Carl spelt with a C, was born in what is now Germany in 1786, and his brother Jacob Ludwig Carl Grimm, Carl with a K, was born in 1785. I just love that the two brothers both have the middle name of Carl, but one is spelt with a C and one is spelt with a K. Yeah, for their for their fathers. <laughs> <laughs> the brothers were many things, including academics, German language scholars, researchers, and philosophers. However, they were most well known for collecting and publishing folklore in the 19th century. The Romantic movement at the time had inspired a renewed interest in folktales. The Brothers Grimm and other scholars at the time looked to these folktales as a way to really understand the culture that created them. You'll likely recognize some of the stories they republished. Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, Rapunzel, Hansel and Gretel, Rumpelstiltskin, and the Frog Prince, just to name a few. They published their classic collection within two volumes, in 1812 and 1815. The first editions included just over 150 stories. The seventh and last grew to 200 stories. That's a lot of stories. A lot of stories. Very many stories. The tales that the Grimm's collected and immortalized have seen many different uses, everything from adaptations by Walt Disney to propaganda used by the Third Reich. Because some of the original releases were seen as quote-unquote unappealing to children, the brothers eventually re-edited and sanitized later versions in an attempt to reach a broader audience, which we're going to talk about more in a second. Hold on. Tell me more about these Nazi fairy tales. I anticipated this question from you. As you should. <laughs> uh, so I looked into it a little bit. And there was certain fairy tales that they they sort of forced people, and I don't, again, know a lot of the background information, but that they like kind of made required reading. And yeah, I don't know what the morals of those stories were, but I'm guessing they were in line with what the the Nazi party thought was important. Got it. I think what's interesting about them, and I I, I only know a little bit about this from, uh, but the Nazis both uh, forced certain tales in their own way, but then they outlawed much of the folklore and folk music that was actually alive in Germany at the time. Hmm. So it was more of a controlled focus than it was an outright elimination and i it, you know it's that sort of control that we've come to know from from them but the the folklore and folk music really saw a resurgence because of its you know it's out it's outlawing by the third reich which was it backfired on them right <laughs> yeah it's like footloose right you tell the kids kind of, exactly it's exactly like footloose then, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean okay it's not exactly like footloose but <laughs> you, you get what i mean <laughs> Yes, I do. I do get what you mean. I'd, I'd watch that version of Footloose. Wow. <laughs> oh, boy. By the 1870s, some of the stories had been adopted into school curriculums in Prussia. In the 20th century, the only printed book more popular was the Bible in Germany than the Brothers Grimm's collection. The book The Hard Facts About the Grimm's Fairy Tales by Maria Tatar focuses on the evolution of their versions of these works. She calls out, for example, that the so we, we talked about how the Brothers Grimm sort of sanitized some of their later their later editions, right? Because they wanted to reach a broader audience. It's she kind of dives into this from a modern perspective and studies that it's even harder for the Brothers Grimm to tolerate pregnancy than it is for them to tolerate violence. 
So as they edited the stories to make them more acceptable for society, quote unquote, they removed what they called certain conditions and relationships. In the first edition, the story of Hans Dumm is included. This character has the power to impregnate women simply by wishing it to be so. By the second edition of the nursery and household tales, the story is totally removed. Similarly, the Grimms got hold of the story, The Master Hunter, in an earlier form by Dorothea Weinman. The hunter finds a naked princess asleep, lays down with her, and later she discovers she's pregnant. In this actual kind of like little plot moment, we see in a ton of fairy tales as we go through. In the Grimm version, the hunter acts as a model of restraint, right? So in the original, the hunter comes through, he sees a naked woman, he lays down with her. In the Grimm version, they totally change this. So he comes in, he sees her, and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to pass on this, right? Like, I am, I am nothing if not a gentleman. So they kind of change the, uh, the plot to make it what they, what they think is more acceptable, right? They remove this, this act. I mean, I, I think that's a reasonable change. No, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not judging them. I'm just calling out some of the changes that they made. You can see these changes explicitly when you look at the Grimm's drafts. For example, in The Frog King, we see parts of the story change from the draft stage to publication, explicitly removing talk of pregnancy. The Brothers Grimm also removed another common theme that we see in early versions of these tales, which is incest. In certain stories where removing these themes would completely change the meaning of the tale, Wilhelm Grimm would instead include judgmental language. So in Thousand Furs, the father proposes marriage to his daughters throughout, like over and over again. It's kind of like the plot of the story. Mm -hmm. However, in the second edition of the Grimm version, his court counsel strongly reprimands him. And in later editions, the father's actions lead to even more dramatic punishments quoting that the entire kingdom be dragged down to perdition. What's kind of fascinating about the origins of these stories Mm -hmm. is that they've become (laughs) these like beloved children's tales that Disney has made super popular and and other, you know, even like you have a fairy tale storybook, right? That is geared towards children. But when you look back at the origins of them, yeah, geared towards children, but it's on like the cusp of when things are sort of changing. Right. But when you look back at really the origins of them, they're violent. They include sexual assault in a lot of cases. There's pregnancy before marriage in a lot of cases. There's all of these things that are just are shocking when you look at kind of the origins of Sleeping Beauty, which, again, we'll kind of get into some more specifics. But this kind of moment in this podcast right now is to look at the Grimm's specifically because they're they're widely like when you think about fairy tales most people even if you don't know the history of them you know about the brothers Grimm, right they made a lot of these tales incredibly popular Mm -hmm. because they published them and immortalized them and it's fascinating to look at like their first editions and the things that they thought were okay to keep in which was kind of because they were doing it originally for academic purposes and then as they started to make money with it and they're like oh we could reach more people if these were a little more pg they dial back certain elements. And the thing that I'm kind of trying to dial in on a little is that they don't necessarily dial back the violence, but what they choose to, which I think is us also like looking at them and their culture right now and what they, you know, what was acceptable, not acceptable to them, which is what they were doing with the fairy tales. But like they choose to, to not include conversations about incest, which like, yeah, sure. I'm on board with that conversations about plot points about pregnancy, but they keep in some like pretty violent 
things. So it's just it's just interesting to think about like what what was going on in their society that kind of prompted this removal of certain elements. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, well, and I think you hit I think you hit on the on the thing they they started as an academic documentation and and they, and you're like you're right, you're right when they started to realize that this was going to be a business this was going to be a livelihood they they shifted to what society wanted to read not what history had brought them and so I, I think it's a good indication of what what the society at the time was interested in consuming in entertainment and and things of that nature and but I think we still do the same thing I don't think that we've come too far because we still like we'll still I, I, and that's a terrible way to say it. I, I think we've come. I think we've come plenty far. But but I think that um, we still there are still certain things that we want to read and don't want to read, and and violence is still very popular. Is anyone familiar with a collection of fairy tales that's kind of like taking it back more towards the source material? Like I know there was like the whole grim TV show mm-hmm. that I never saw, but I'm assuming was not made for kids. I watched some of it. Um, I don't know if you if if you did Abby, but um, no. they did. They borrowed from that original some of the original mm-hmm. flavor. They didn't get too. They didn't make it too too accurate. Um, <laughs> so so but, when uh, they found the the woman laying in the woods, they they. Still I, I don't even know no. if that. I don't know if that ever <laughs> happened in in the Grim TV show. But uh, I, I I actually for I haven't seen the whole thing. But from what I watched, it was uh, kind of a fun adaptation where uh, the the Grims were not simply collectors of fairy tales they were hunters mm-hmm. of magical beasts and so forth yeah. um, and That's it's kind cool. of an inherited job you know that lands on this guy but um but they did like borrow a, a lot premise. of the lore yeah it is yeah. a great premise yeah but they they borrowed a lot from the lore but they didn't really mm-hmm. they didn't get too gritty yeah well which also feels very much in line with just how folk tales are generally told or folk t- well uh, when you think when you think of fairy tales you don't think so much embellishment as you think of with folklore because it's usually like a written down, established something. Well, and that would be the literary version. But yes, thank you, I, thank you. I absolutely believe that the the, the stories that the Grimm's collected were one version of the story that mm. the Grimm's yeah. collected. One of the things that I think is lost when when so the Grimm's did a great service to preserving the actual stories. Mm-hmm. They we we wouldn't have the knowledge of some of these things if they hadn't written them down, but. We lose you lose something in the writing down of the story as opposed to the telling of the story. Sure. And that's that's the dynamic between the teller and the listener. Yeah. And the story would have evolved from telling to telling based on who was sitting around your fire. Uh, it would have changed based on what person's values wanted to come across and what story. It was it was mutable and malleable uh, until it was written down, and then we lost the dynamic. Mm. Um, so we're looking at it from that perspective, but it's all, it's all on paper at this point. So it never changes until it does. <laughs> and right. someone writes it down differently, but yeah. Or until they make the HBO version. The, yes. The HBO version. <laughs> and then we get back to the basics we go back to that whole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I will say, Alan, if you, cause I think originally you were asking about like, is there a collection of the originals or not the originals, but just like made for adults again. I think a lot of these collections right now that we're talking about, like Perot's collections, the Grimm collections, weren't necessarily made for children. Like they weren't being sanitized at this point because of kids. Like Perot was writing them down for like French high society. 
they were being marketed towards adults, but society was at whatever level of comfortability they were with some of the topics, right? And so that is coming through. And then later they become like a, a children's focus when we get to Disney and more modern versions. But I will say, if you or anyone else is interested in, in reading some of the earlier unsanitized versions, they're all very accessible online. Like you can find them. There's tons of, of there's websites for Hans Christian Andersen's collections. You could also find them on Project Gutenberg. You can also find them on Wikipedia and some, you know, the originals or like early versions are very accessible online. So Mm -hmm. if there's any, as we go through that, we don't, we don't go into as much as you would like to learn about. You can very easily Google it and read like a bunch of different versions. And, And most of them are pretty short, to be honest. Cool. The interesting thing is they they started as in an effort to, I think, study and preserve German folklore specifically. So also part of this is what they preserved and what has become really popular are the German versions of these. Right. Um, And they already existed orally in tons of other areas, which would have had, to your point, totally different versions of them because they were the people who chose to do it. Right. That's kind of like those have become written on the tablet, so to speak. And then again, as these became more broadly appealing and and kind of people wanted mass mass produced versions they got kind of whitewashed so to speak a little bit until they became like a more palatable version of what they originally were i i I don't know if this is true or not but it i'm gonna say it anyways okay when i was in college and taking you might know this because you you went to college yeah uh for for english yeah when i was there when i took my first writing class the professor was giving so much credit to the Brothers Grimm mm-hmm. uh, for establishing a lot of things like for uh, literary structure, coining the, the like the three act structure, the rules of threes, pro you know protagonist, antagonist, inciting incident, huh? And how this was that all these things existed previously, but they just really baked it down to a formula when they wrote it down. Interesting. I had never heard that before. Had you, John? Uh, not specific to the Brothers Grimm, but for you know, for fairy tales and things in general, I've I've heard things like that before, but I I don't know how true it is either. I, I'm I'm with you, but um, at least in in my observation, that's they they certainly did well with that. I don't know if um, I don't it, know if if they're the first ones to do it. I couldn't tell you. I mean, highly doubt that they're the first ones to do right, it. Right? Uh, yeah, and it may be that they're that maybe they're the first ones to really codify it in that succ- right. that succinctly. But I I don't even know that. I couldn't venture to guess. Well, um, you, you might have uh, identified it earlier when you're saying how the, their book was second only in popularity to the Bible. Yeah. So it is, you know, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So if yeah, if everyone is familiar with it, of course they're going to get the credit for it. Yeah, I mean that was in Germany, but yeah. Yeah, and certainly the credit for popularizing it in Germany. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, exactly. you know. So here comes what I what I think is the fun part of, of this. <laughs> Let's look at a few specific fairy tales and track some of the changes. John actually <laughs> did um, an episode on Fado about Little Red Riding Hood, which is where we're going to start. So go listen to that as well, because he has beautiful readings of the versions of both that we're going to talk about. And I think it's a, a, an, an awesome companion to this little section here. So Little Red Riding Hood, though this tale is often attributed to Charles Perrault, who was the first person to officially write and publish it, but it actually is over 2,000 years old. It's believed to have originated between Europe and the Middle East. The Perrault version was published in the 17th century. There is also a grim version of the story, and it originated along with its author, Perrault, in France. So like I said earlier, it was written for an audience of Perrault's peers, meaning the French aristocrats and societal elites. 
Perrault was actually a prominent figure in France during the reign of Louis XIV, not just because of his fairy tales. He also held positions in government. Not just because of his fairy tales? That's right. I find that hard to believe. (laughs) (laughs) I meant to say, like, he, you know, he was a society man. He was involved in the government. He was well off. He kind of had a little group of elite people that like to hang out at his house and and hear him tell fairy tales. But it's also interesting that that like he was like a creative and he was also like a government official. You know, it's kind of like an interesting position to have. Let's hope that's how he was announced every time he went into a room. (laughs) Fairy tale and society man. (laughs) Pro would have written this version of Little Red Riding Hood to be told to his impressive and wealthy group of friends. He was writing fairy tales not for children at all at this point. The part of this fairy tale you may be less familiar with is the moral that Perot includes at the very end. So I'm going to assume everybody is, is mostly familiar with the story of Little Red Riding Hood. So this fairy tale actually brings us full circle and allows us to understand the story in the context it was originally written for. Perot's moral. We see here that young children, and this is quoting, sorry. We see here that young children, especially young, well-bred ladies, should not listen to any sort of person. It isn't strange that a wolf eats so many of them up. I say wolf, for not all wolves are the same kind. Some are of a comely humor who follow young ladies into their homes, into their salons. But alas, who does not know that these smooth-talking wolves are the most dangerous wolves of all? In Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf tricks her, dresses up as the grandmother, gets her into the grandmother's house. Perot's version, he's explicitly admitting, and I do like that in Perot, all of Perot's versions of fairy tales, he includes like a moral that's like called out separately at the end. Just, just in case you miss it in the subject. Just Exactly. Yeah. He's like, hey, <laughs> he's admitting, right, that, that this version is meant to be a warning to women specifically at this time to avoid smooth talking wolfish men, right, who are going to try to get them to get them home. This bit gets dropped in most retellings, but you can see that it gives us context. Perot is talking about smooth-talking, wolvish men who follow women uninvited into their homes. So he's talking about sexual assault and rape. We also see this echoed in the violence throughout the story. And I will note that some scholars still believe that this tale is about seduction, but I think given the nature of the story, there is also a good case to be made about it being a more violent allegory. The other theme here that rings true to society is that Red Riding Hood is almost blamed or given some responsibility for what is happening to her. In more modern versions, we often see her sexualized, especially Tex Avery's animation Red Hot Riding Hood from 1943. So there's a ton of of versions of, I mean, even till this day, right? There's so many recent live action movies of, of Red Riding Hood, and you often see her as... A sexy Halloween costume. Exactly, yes. Well, you know what I think that kind of relates to? We Earlier we talked about... uh, you know, taboo subjects and things that, that, that we don't like to talk about in society and, and the things that they didn't like to talk about in society. I think nowadays, in order to make this tale palatable, we grow her up and make her a kind of sexual being uh, so that we're not bothered by the fact that she's a little girl. Right. Um, mm. and so we give her what society sees as a good deal of power so that she can face the wolf on modern society's terms. And, that makes sense. Yeah. So... But but yeah, and even like once upon a time, they made her this sexy diner worker. Like I don't know if you've seen Once Upon a Time. Like <laughs> yeah, she, she's like I don't know. She likes I I can't even remember. She likes motorcycles and it's like you know. But they give right. her yeah right yeah. But uh, but I think that's what we've done. Like we've we've done that so that we can handle the fact that 
Riding Hood has to deal with all of these things. Mm-hmm. And if she's a little girl, we can't handle that. We're remaking the story in modern terms. And the solution is to make her just like someone who could handle it, you know, versus changing the nature, of, you know, versus like putting blame. Like we're just making her stronger so she can fight for, her. you know, it's just. It's- what would you prefer? Like if you were writing, if you were retelling Red Riding Hood, how would you retell it? What would I'm curious. I just love to know. This this brings me back to uh, our our conversations we've had many times on this podcast about She Wolf. Yeah, which, uh, I'm hoping we'll go there. Yeah, which uh, is uh, if somehow anyone doesn't know, it's a a silly script that I wrote and and the first Lunatics film that we made, and also uh, we have an episode where there's a, a different version of it that I wrote. Um, and essentially, it's a short story or, or short film that. I wrote in the idea is that there's a woman who is a werewolf and she only preys on men who are trying to assault her or hurt her in some way. I've done the same thing essentially, right? Like, okay. But what we're saying is that you've done the same thing. No, I'm just saying I've done the same (laughs) thing that I'm telling John. I wished that, you know, once upon a time didn't do, which is that like the response is, Oh, women need to be a certain way in order to survive men in order to handle men in order to not be assaulted by men like women need to be violent and prepared to fight to the death in order to which is like okay maybe true but like also don't you wish that that wasn't that the story we were saying wasn't okay women you need to be really strong and not just women but i'm just talking about this example specifically Mm. right Women, you need to be super strong to to defend yourself versus the moral of the story being men don't rape women. Yeah, I well, and I think more, more specifically what you did with She-Wolf and I watched She-Wolf. I was I was <laughs> I went after you guys talked about it. I was like, well, I got to see this. Uh, first of all, the nails, the the manicure. Yeah, so good. Se- Thank you. Thank but uh, sec- second of all, I think what what She-Wolf does is actually flip the script a little bit and turns the wolf into the woman. Yeah. And so the man becomes Red Riding Hood in that story, um, which is interesting. And I'm not I'm I mean, I'm here for it. It was super fun. <laughs> Thank um, you. It was it was cool. But I, I think that the only way out of that story, the only way out of Red Riding Hood is where the wolf is not so wolfy and the girl is not so clueless. If you're going to tell a story that talks about, you know, healthy relationships between the wolf and the girl, <laughs> then you've got to have, you know, a less wolfy wolf and a less whatever red is. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. They need to meet in the middle somewhere, in my opinion. And that's, you know, if I was going to, if I was going to tell a different story, that's what I would do. But no, I, I think you're, I think you're right. I think, you know, it's easy. It's an easy way out to just say, well, clearly they can handle it. So right. let's just make them, you know, and I think that gets in your, too in your face. Like nobody wants to be, you know, assaulted with that, but. Femininity and masculinity is very fluid, but that like women almost need to be masculine. You know, women need to be men almost in order yeah. to, you know what I mean? It, yeah. It's and, very, and I've, n- I've yeah. never been one to agree with, with that particular thing. Like you've got to be this way right. to solve the problem. And I, I think that's the wrong way to go. Yeah. It's actually interesting though, because there is a later version of a later early version of Red Riding Hood that does not flip the script as dramatically as we're talking about, but, but does a little bit which we'll talk about. It really ha- you really have to like take a step back and like what is the moral lesson that is being discussed in the story. Most people in order to learn a moral lesson you have to identify with the protagonist usually, see their journey in some facet. And so if you're trying to teach a lesson about 
making the wolf less wolfy, <laughs> then uh, you would have to, the story would almost have to be from their perspective. You would have to see their emotional journey or turmoil, right? Yeah. Um, More of a Frankenstein's monster sort of scenario. Yeah, than exactly. Yeah, for sure. But instead, the lesson is that there's always going to be predators. Right, which is true. And yeah, yeah, in the best of cases, somebody's still going to be a problem. Yeah. So, and you have to be able to identify the predator before it causes danger. Mm-hmm. And I don't want—I don't want to blame any victims. I, but I would love it if the victims were prepared. I, I yeah. yeah. And I also play devil's advocate, and I—I no love—I love the trope of you have the very stereotypical victim who is in a lot of trouble, and then you just arm them with you know high powered weaponry or something and like that's act two of the film yeah or and for me like i'm i agree with you i i like i like a vulnerable protagonist because i i love an underdog mm-hmm. um but i also love a, a, a an underdog who discovers that they have the skills or the tools to solve the problem uh whatever it is and it doesn't i mean it doesn't have to be lord writing hood it's but any of those scenarios i love an underdog story but I like, I, but I hate it when they give me an underdog and promise they're going to win and then they don't. I hate that. Don't do that to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I agree with, I agree with you both. I think to me, even looking outside of the story of Little Red Riding Hood, right? Looking at Perot's specific moral that he called out. That to me is like his specific moral was women beware of, like young girls beware of wolfish men. What if yeah. his specific moral, and again, like I'm not going to rewrite history, but yeah. what if his specific moral was men don't assault and stalk women? To me, that's the key, right? The I think moral that's a fair itself point. is the key, right? That's an excellent point. And and who's to say that that wasn't out there, but it just did get didn't get written written down? Mm-hmm. I hope so. I hope it was. But I I think that's a great point. We should definitely be addressing both sides of that coin. The the young innocent girl in the court definitely needs to know what's already there. But yeah. we also need to take some sort of step on the other side of the coin. As a side note. Oh, boy. So <laughs> we, we, we were discussing how the, you, ha- like, in, you have the story of uh, a wolf being like super creepy and luring someone into their home for nefarious reasons. Right? Sort of, yeah. Sort of. But it reminds me of the movie Creep. Oh, my goodness. When the guy puts on a wolf mask, yeah, what was this? Snuffles, buttercups, or peach fuzz. Peach fuzz. That's what. A, yeah, he he calls himself peach fuzz when he wears the wolf mask, and he lures them in with this false sense of security before conducting his uh, nefarious plot. John, that's, have you seen Creep? I no, that sounds terrible. <laughs> so here, let me <laughs> let me tell you about Creep. Uh, we're big fans of Creep and Creep Two over here at Lunatics Radio. Creep is uh, a Mark Duplass film, which he made with his brother. And it's fascinating from like a filmmaking perspective, because Mark Duplass is like a, a really famous actor. Uh, he's in like, you know, he's he's you, you might not know his name, but if you saw him, you'd be like, ah, that guy. And as like a side fun project with his brother, they made this film Creep, which for like thirty dollars, like thirty dollars, <laughs> which they had like no script. They kind of had an outline and they used it's kind of like a found footage film and it, you know, but it does it really well. And and they it works really well. It's a horror film. It's it's scary. I'll say. I hadn't guessed. Yeah, yeah, and then arguably, I would say Creep Two is even better. They're both on Netflix, I believe. But I think well, the sequel's always better, right? 
<laughs> yeah, always in a horror movie. <laughs> They're interesting because not only are they found footage horror films that are good, which is a genre of horror film that I really like, and they're actually effectively scary, more so the first one. The second one's a comedy, I would say. But I think, Alan, you're making a good point. And we even were watching like... Always do. Like Scooby-Doo this morning. And we're like, hey, or or Looney Tunes. We're like, hey, the plot of this is just like the plot of Hansel and Gretel. And, And to see like kind of the basics of storytelling structure, and they say, right, there's only like six stories you can tell, but the the basics of some of these plot points you know are still just being retold and recycled over and over and over again forever you know you're you're not really telling an original story you're telling the the part about storytelling that's so fun is the thing that you bring to that story as the writer you know absolutely the punchline is that my therapist made me watch it so what does that say i don't know <laughs> <laughs> and so and she knows of course you're into this whole thing oh, yeah. like up to your elbows yeah okay yeah <laughs> So there's a later version of Little Red Riding Hood called The Story of Grandmother, which was taken from local peasant folklore in the 19th century and transcribed by Paul Delarue over 100 years after the Perot version. A major call out is that this version includes cannibalism. Oh, what a twist. (laughs) The little girl's mother sends her to bring milk and bread to her grandmother. She encounters the wolf who asks her which path she's taking. He then beats her to her grandmother's house and kills the woman, kills the grandmother. But in this case, he chops up her body and puts some of her blood into a bottle. When Riding Hood arrives, he offers her some of the meat and blood to drink and eat, which he disguises as bread and wine. Oh, sure. Classic move. (laughs) (laughs) The wolf then asks her to take off her clothes, burn them in the fire and get in bed with him. She does so and remarks on how hairy her grandmother feels. Before he has a chance to strike, however, she has to use the restroom. So the wolf ties rope around her ankle and sends her outside. And she escapes. She actually outwits him and escapes. The call out with this version, beyond the shockingly brutal cannibalism, are the connections we see to the wine being blood and the bread being the body. Because this version originated in the Catholic countryside of France, many believe this is symbolic of the Eucharist. You don't say. In Catholicism, Get it's out. believed <laughs> it's believed that this ritual brings about strength. And some scholars believe that because Riding Hood ingests her grandmother, she is given the strength to escape from the wolf. Like she's literally taking on the grandmother's wisdom and strength by eating part of her body. But look how different the meaning behind this tale is than Perot's version. The story leaves us with an empowered woman who learns how to outwit a predator and survives. I'm not sure that grandmother's wisdom did her any good. No, it didn't. It wasn't <laughs> enough for grandmother to survive, but it was maybe enough the for combined wisdom of grandmother and red. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and why? Why did she have to get naked and burn her clothes? But, uh, I think because she was cold, or you know, whatever. There was like a, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I've, I think part. Did I? I'm trying to remember if the part, the one that I read, it had parts of this in it. I think, but not all of it. Um, I I decided on my on my episode to do two of the five or six that I. And I don't remember exactly which two it was, but yeah, I remember this version and I'm like, I, I clearly, I have, I am missing something culturally yeah. that I don't have all of the cultural context to understand this one fully. I remember thinking that and like, yeah, but I did, I picked up on the whole, the whole bread and uh, mm-hmm. wine thing as well. I, I wondered how red could be so clueless. She clearly <laughs> doesn't know what wine tastes like. Uh, and what bread, bread what, versus bloody really, meat, you know? Seriously. And so, I, yeah, but I'm sure there's some cultural context there that I don't have that probably made that resonate with whoever 
heard it or told it to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just conjecture, but I think if you live, you're sort of like in a peasant society and it's cold and you're in the woods and you come home and like you all huddle in one bed, you know, to me, I'm like, there could be some sort of warmth thing happening there. But the burning the clothes, I'm not, well, <laughs> I certainly, did not trace that. <laughs> uh, you know, gathering in one bed is certainly nothing that, that that's not weird to me. The the burning, the I'm not sure why we're burning the clothes. Yeah, I can even with your grandmother. I think Freud would have a lot to say about that. Well, one. Uh, and the thing is, it may not even be that like burning your clothes may be the over, she may have an under shirt like a like a, a right. slip a night clothes or something or, or mm. a slip underneath we don't know but I, i've thought it i've thought through that i was like that's really strange to burn your clothes maybe yeah. maybe for fleas i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean a wolf that that was foreshadowing yeah a wolf exactly would be very exactly. uh anti-flea anti-flea yeah. super anti-flea. <laughs> which is the when i think of like old brutal riddle little red riding hood i think of the one where the woodcutter shows up cuts open the wolf and then shoves him full of rocks and throws him in the river yeah that and i did read that one the woodcutter and and in that one the woodcutter shows up and uh yeah cuts them out of the wolf then they fill the wolf with rocks and everybody is fine but then i there was even an addition and this this is actually kind of interesting related to what we were talking about, but there's an addition to that story afterward where then another wolf comes and grandma and red actually take care of that one on their own. So now let's talk about what I think might be one of the most famous fairy tales in Western society, at least, which is Cinderella. Cinderella is an interesting fairy tale to examine because its earliest known origin is known. Oh, and because it's such an enduring classic. Modern audiences can thank Walt Disney for its extreme popularity. The story of Rhodopis is believed to be the first instance of this classic tale, which has been traced back to the 6th century BCE. It was written down somewhere between 7 BCE and 24 AD by Strabo, who's a Greek geographer. The story goes, and this is quoting Strabo, They tell the fabulous story that when she was bathing, an eagle snatched one of her sandals from her maid and carried it to Memphis. And while the king was administering justice in the open air, the eagle, when it arrived above his head, flung the sandal onto his lap. And the king, stirred both by the beautiful shape of the sandal and the strangeness of the occurrence, sent men in all directions into the country in quest of the woman who wore the sandal. And when she was found in the city of Nocritus, she was brought up to Memphis. She became the wife of the king. The first European literary version of Cinderella was released in 1634 in Italy by Giambattista Basile. However, the version that is most recognizable to modern audiences comes from our friend Charles Perrault in 1697. And of course, not to be left out, in 1812, the Brothers Grimm released their own version of this classic fairy tale. Though this story exists in folklore across regions and territories with different cultures and languages, the core of this tale remains the same. Focusing on a character who starts off in a poor socioeconomic situation, largely unimportant to society, and rises through the ranks to some level of success or wealth or importance. There are several prominent non-European versions. Yixian is a Chinese fairy tale first written down around 850 AD. There are, of course, many oral versions that predate this written version. The story goes that Yixian is the daughter of a tribe leader who passes away. She is then left in the care of her stepmother who mistreats her. She befriends a fish who ends up being the reincarnation of her mother, who had long since passed away. Her evil stepmother and stepsisters brutally kill the fish, but Yixian 
is able to find the bones and use their magic to help her prepare for a local festival. A little bone, bone a necromancy. Magical golden shoe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we have reincarnation in this story. We have necromancy in this story. Bone necromancy. Pe- pescromancy. Yeah, exactly. Fish necromancy. Yeah. <laughs> her evil family recognizes her at the festival, and as she is running away, she loses the shoe. The king from another sea island finds the shoe and searches for its owner. When he reaches her house, she tries it on and joins the king. Her evil family is killed by flying rocks. The pro version is much nicer than the grim version. In the grim version, the sisters cut off parts of their feet in order to fit into slippers. And by the end, they have their eyes pecked out by doves. Yeah. That's the part. That's the version I read. (laughs) So brutal, right? Like, that's the interesting thing is just like how... Even today, like writing a story like that, you would be, it would be like, it would be pretty intense. Well, it happens, see, but yeah, still. well, to me, that, that version of the story. So first of, first of all, I have so many thoughts on Cinderella, Please, uh, but first of all, it makes so much more sense that, the, that, that the, uh, the king or, or whoever found a shoe and then went looking for the owner of the shoe without knowing what the shoe owner looked like. Yeah. What never made sense to me was the fact that the prince spent the entire evening with this girl and then couldn't tell, other than with her shoe size, what she looked <laughs> yes. like. Never made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this other thing is like the idea that I, I've always thought that the commentary is uh, kind of satirical on, on Cinderella for the fact that the mother and stepsisters, or the stepmother and stepsisters are so bent on attaining status, they'll do anything to get what they want, including cutting parts of their feet off, which I think is probably some sort of satirical commentary. It's kind of what it reads as to me. Yeah. That, you know, like, this is ridiculous. Why Why are we so self-important in this way? So. What, was the slipper glass, or was that only the Disney version? Golden or glass? I can't remember, but it's not always glass. Because, I mean, golden would make sense. It mm. starts off in, like, the earliest version as a sandal, and yeah. then in the Chinese version, it's a golden shoe, and I, yeah, I think that's there's it. probably that's, a yeah. ton of different versions. Yeah, yeah I mean that, that's a tough one. Oh, who who can fit into this flip flop? Well, it's also <laughs> interesting that she's the only one. You know, in the right. whole like, what unique foot size is she that no one right. else could get close? That's to weird. Too. Seventeen and a half. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never considered that. I never, yeah, it's, yeah. They, they keep saying it's because her feet are so small, but no, maybe they were like Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, like. That's it. <laughs> I mean, uh, can you blame the prince then? You know, no, I guess whole, I can't. <laughs> the whole time he's just staring at her one huge, huge foot. <laughs> the only other thing is I, I read two versions of this as well. I did one uh, and then did a bonus episode, which was a different recording. In one, Cinderella is, while she is um, probably the best among many characters in terms of grace and kindness and all of those things in both versions of the story in one, she is sort of a victim of, of society, like, like a lot of these stories, but in another uh, it's very clear that she has some sort of supernatural power that she utilizes to sort of direct her, her, uh, her path. Yeah. The other, it's Cinderella, which it might, I can't remember if it was the John Batista Basile. It might've been his version, but he, Basically, his her, her mother dies, right? But she dies and becomes a tree in the backyard and where Cinderella waters her and grows her into mm. this tree. And so she ends up spending a lot of time talking to her mother, who is a tree. She also s- speaks a lot to birds. She speaks in rhyme. 
she basically does a lot of evocations and makes things happen. She creates her own dress, goes to the ball. It's essentially a witchcraft sort of setup, but cool. but she's given kind of some sort of agency over over the story instead of it just happening to her. So she she's a better protagonist in my opinion. Yeah, I I I like that a lot more. Uh, the I did too. I, I said the same thing. It's just a cooler story. A cooler story, and it's it's a little hard to be able to identify with someone that's just basically. Nothing special about them except that their right. life sucks. The story of Cinderella and the story of Sleeping Beauty, it's more or less, it's named for them, but it's really a story about the people around them and not them directly. I'm sorry, I would like to redact my statement. Uh, it's actually very easy to identify with someone who, you know, <laughs> there's nothing special about them except their life sucks. But, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, it is, however, not the type of escapism that yeah. makes yeah. for a good story. Agree. Yeah, for sure. It's also interesting when we talk about common themes that we see, right? Parents passing away, especially mothers, and the idea of those mothers then being, you know, like in in the one of the versions I just referenced, the mother was the dead fi- or the f- f- fish, right? She was reincarnated into a fish. In this version, she's a the tree. One, the one with the skeleton. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, that the Chinese version and, and a, a, a European version have like kind of the same core but like different skins kind of a thing you know yeah 100 percent. so we're gonna put a pin in, in this fascinating conversation with john cook for this week and we're gonna come back next week with part two of the disturbing history of fairy tales so thank you guys so much for being here john it's been an honor to have you on the show thank you very much for having me if you aren't already subscribed to fido please do that on any podcast platform and john where can people find you on social media you can find me, I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Fido Podcast, and you can also go to FidoPodcast.com, and that'll direct you to the show or to my merchandise or anything that you'd like to find out about Fido. And also, if you are interested in becoming a backer, you can join the Patreon at uh, Patreon.com slash Podcast and uh, become a member of the Rule of Three. I'll send you a personal letter. It'll be really cool. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, come back next week and we will have we'll have more disturbing details for you then. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Is there anything else you want to add? No. All right. That was perfect. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content, consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron exclusive podcast, Horror Movie Club. Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel. You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more. And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there. Our cover art is by Pilar Kep, and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.